All of you on the good earth. One, That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 807, for the week of Monday, August 22nd, 2016. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, sir. Welcome back, everybody else out there. Good to be back in the saddle again. Yes, great to have you with us. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Howdy. And welcome back, everybody. This is very exciting. Two of our awesome panelists are back. We will begin with Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Welcome, Cassie. Oh, it's so good to be back. And also super excited to welcome back Kat Robinson. Welcome back. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be back after an interesting summer abroad. Yes, indeed. Turkey, I believe, correct? Yes, yes, I spend the majority of my summer in Turkey with a few side trips to uh, Europe as well. But, you know, managed to get myself back safely, didn't get uh, taken over by any dictators or blown up by anything. So I will count that as a success. That's usually a good start, right? <laughs> Always. <laughs> All right, speaking of a good start, let's get right into things here. And we're going to start with a recap of a few engine firings and launches that happened recently. One of them was a launch from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station at 12.52 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, August 19th, and that was a Delta IV Medium Plus 4-2, boy that name rolls right off the tongue, on AFSPC-6, which was a launch for the Air Force, launching two more satellites into its GSSAP program. That is the Geosynchronous Space Situational Awareness Program. That launch went off without a hitch and everything looked pretty good delivering those satellites to its assigned orbit. The feed cut off at payload fairing separation from the United Launch Alliance. They usually air a lot of all of their their launches, but in this case, at the request of the Air Force, they cut the feed as soon as the payload fairing was, was separated again because of the nature of, of this particular payload. From what I understand, though, all is operating as uh, as planned as far as this particular launch is concerned, and everything went off quite well. Speaking of feeds, ULA does an excellent job when they do live feeds. I was really impressed, not only with that great sidebar that they had, kind of letting you know what stage to expect the other sidebar they put on when they were doing the uh, readiness checklist, doing the count for the launch, and the really interesting like facts of going on at the bottom. I was really impressed with their live feed. So, go ULA. Yeah, bravo, Kat. That crawl really, really makes all the difference. They're really trying to go after what SpaceX has been doing, I think, and with, with a lot of their live feeds. And they're also starting to put uh, ULA associates in there as far as hosting the launches, too, which I thought was a kind of a cool idea as well. So Yeah, it, who says an old dog can't learn new tricks? Exactly. And this is showing it. 
Oh yeah. Uh, I believe it, Andrea Leinhoffen was the person who was doing it, who normally works with 3D printing at ULA, but was hosting a webcast. So yeah, really well done. Agreed overall with that. And one of the things that was mentioned on the scroll that I also thought is very interesting is the next ULA launch will be an Atlas V 411 configuration. And that one is once again, OSIRIS-REx, which is the asteroid sample recovery mission currently on track for its launch on September 8th. Once again, Talking Space will be at that launch, so we'll bring you all the sounds and sights as best as we can on an audio podcast when that happens. So stay tuned. Just one more stat for that uh, particular launch. That was the 110th successful launch for the United Launch Alliance, and I believe that was the 14th Delta 4-2 launch that went successfully. So again, hats off to ULA and good job done by everybody. And uh, I'll just I'll just interject one other thing with reference to the launch. It was dedicated to a uh, former uh, well to a late ULA member, uh, Rami Hill. So I'm going to go ahead and just mention his name and uh, just salute him uh, as far as a member of the team. Something ULA does, they go ahead and commemorate their launches uh, for you know individuals that are no longer with 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 us anymore, and uh, they dedicate. Uh, you know those launches because of their all their hard work and so on so i thought that was a neat touch oh yeah and just to keep in mind when you say 110 that's 110 consecutive launches that have gone off pretty much without a problem that's correct sawyer thanks that's a heck of a record and i'm hoping it stays 111 for osiris rex as well which not only will there be an atlas 5 and osiris rex out at that launch pad there is now a new addition out at the atlas 5 pad and that is the white room, the room that the astronauts use to board spacecraft, has been put up for another launch that will be going out of that launch pad, and that is Boeing's Starliner, formerly the CST-100 manned spacecraft. So that white room has now been installed at the pad in anticipation of a launch within the next year or two. So it's getting close and getting exciting. Yeah, what's, what was really cool, Sawyer, is when I was down there, as far as um, the OA-4 mission was concerned, they gave us press types, a nice little tour of that particular area and what was going on and how they were going to rig that particular white room up and so on. All of the, the safety features on the pad, how they're going to put the the usual you know escape features similar to what they had with shuttle. Just really, really exciting stuff going on. I'll have to go ahead and dig back to our OA4 coverage and try to see what I can find on uh, on those pad modifications and bring them forward because there was some really interesting stuff going on. And speaking of getting some other things coming up and launching in about 2017 or 2018, we also had the test fire of one of the RS-25 engines that will be powering NASA's SLS, Space Launch System. That test successfully occurred on Thursday, August 18th at the Stennis Space Flight Center. It burned for pretty much the entire length of what it would be burning during its mission of about seven and a half minutes, and everything appeared to be going well. I guess the engines are not just going to be throttling up to 104%. What did they get it up to this test, Gene? I believe the engine was throttled up to 111%, as you pointed out, for about 420 seconds. They were taking all sorts of data readings as far as how the engine was performing. After the test, the uh, Stennis representative, name escapes me, I apologize, came out and basically said the test was grand. They got all the data they needed. The test went the full duration, and they're quite happy with what they were seeing. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be some sort of report in the not-too-distant future as far as what they discovered and so on 
but uh, all in all, it went uh, very, very good, Sawyer. There'll be four engines on uh, the Space Launch System when it's eventually launched. I believe they're going to have to fire for about, um, according to a placard I'm looking here, for about 8.5 minutes. And these are proven engines. I mean, the RS-25 has been carrying shuttle aloft now for, what, 30 years. So these are tried-and-true uh, engines, and they're they're set to go to work. There's been a lot of complaining out there on Twitter that, yeah, you're just going to go ahead and dump them in the ocean with SLS. And I'll just remind folks that's what we did with Saturn, too. So watch the launch date. I believe they're still on target for... EM-1 or Exploration Mission 1 sometime in uh, late 2018. I believe that uh, Orion is also on target for that. That will be the the payload for this particular launch, along with some CubeSats and so on. But we're hoping to uh, have a good mission with Orion, too. I believe they're going to fly Orion out uh, beyond the orbit of the moon and, and come back and try to see how far they can get with the spacecraft. So it, it'll be an exciting mission for sure. But uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed for fall of 2018. Yep. And also just to put in a little bit of facts there, the engines were rated for 109% of their maximum rated thrust for shuttle. They only went with 104 they're planning on flying these at 109% of its maximum rated thrust, which is 109% power, basically. Uh, so that's why they did it at 111% to basically show that, hey, we can do 109%, no problem. See, we can even go above that. So that was the reason for that. Exciting test. I believe there's seven more tests scheduled before the core stage test and the first flight. Yep, that's correct, Sawyer. And uh, just to give a, a plug, not only uh, NASA Stennis is involved, but Aerojet Rocketdyne is the designer of this engine, and they're really, really, really working hard to make it work for SLS, so hats off to them, too. Yes, indeed. Now, while we're finishing up all of our launches and firings and everything like that, uh, we can't forget about the most recent SpaceX Falcon 9 launch, which was on August 14th, that successfully placed the JCSAT-16 into a geostationary transfer orbit. So JCSAT-16 is a Japanese communication satellite, and of course the big story with that is, once again, stuck the landing, 10 out of 10, very appropriate with the Olympics going on. All the judges, including the Russian judge, probably would have given that a 10, sticking it right in the middle of the barge in the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, the news media sure as heck did, and anybody else watching the launch. The interesting thing about this particular payload sort of that we're carrying, this was a uh, communications satellite for uh, Sky Perfect JSAT of Japan, a communications company. JCSAT-16 was supposed to be a spare, and I'm reading from a Space News piece dated July 14th here. This satellite was supposed to be just simply a spare, but because of a accident with another satellite that was supposed to launch later this year, which actually grounded it. Apparently, it got damaged in transit, and it's going to take a year to repair. JCSAT-16 became really, really critical because now that was going to become the primary. So, you know, SpaceX really had to go ahead and step up the game and make sure that the payload got there. And hats off. They did a good job. The payload was delivered to orbit. They made their customer happy. So that's really, really a primary thing here. I think, too, that the booster landing, although, hey, that's gravy. I like seeing that stuff. It means that the stuff is working. It means that their business model has a chance of actually perhaps even proving itself. Earlier when we were away, I believe the insurance companies gave the okay for SpaceX to go ahead and pursue this thing. They said, yeah, okay, fine. We're going to buy into what you're doing, basically reusing these first stage boosters, which was a huge step for SpaceX. Absolutely huge. 
this goes ahead gives them the green light to try to make reusability work so that's really the crux of their whole business model and it's going to just be very very interesting to see what that's going to do to space launch going forward and to delivering payload to low earth orbit and to geosync orbit so stay tuned strap yourselves in grab the popcorn it's going to get interesting out there oh yeah and SpaceX has a busy launch manifest, too, for the rest of the year as well. There are at least nine missions that are awaiting a SpaceX launch this year. They had initially said they were planning on 18 launches in 2016. So far, they've completed eight. So they're on track, though. A bunch of them, though, the companies have said, we want to launch by the end of the year. They've got about nine companies that are basically saying, launch us. Come on. Yeah, Sawyer, that's that's a big deal. And again, you've pointed out they've got nine launches left. I'm not too sure on track. I mean, I, I always thought 18 launches was a little ambitious, to be honest with you. And I think you're you're kind of pushing the limits of your uh, your, your workforce there a little bit. One of those launches, I may I may add, is one of the cargo launches for the ISS. I believe that's CRS 10, and I believe that's scheduled for. Correct me if I'm wrong, Sawyer, November of this year as far as i know that's correct as of right yeah. now it's scheduled for november from Cape yes. Canaveral, and then there are three scheduled from vandenberg air force base as well right so they've got their work cut out for them i just want to make sure they're not pushing their resources a little too hard so uh, you know people get tired they get when they get tired they make mistakes and mm, you don't want to do that when you're talking space flight so I mean, we've seen it once before with SpaceX, but we hope that that never happens again, and we hope that they continue to be successful with theirs, and wish them the best of luck in all their upcoming launches. Speaking of CRS-10 and SpaceX cargo missions, CRS-9, their previous resupply mission, is currently at the International Space Station, scheduled to come back with all of its supplies and science experiments and everything on board before the end of August. It also delivered something to the International Space Station this past Friday as well, thanks to a spacewalk. And that is the new docking port that will be used for future commercial vehicles, such as the Starliner and the Dragon manned version. Exciting stuff, and I saw a lot of media were picking this up all around the United States and around the world, too. Yeah, so the, the actual era of commercial spaceflight, if you will, piloted spaceflight, if you will, uh, began, if I'm checking my notes here, very, very quickly. Oh, come on. Gosh darn it. There you go. At about 1040 uh, a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on... August 19th, so mark that on your calendar. That was when the uh, IDA, or the uh, International Docking Adapter, was officially installed. That EVA started at about 8.03. Actually, the hatch opened at about 8.03, and the EVA really didn't start until about uh, oh, 8.09. That EVA went very, very smoothly. They did have some problems getting uh, the IDA out of the trunk of the Dragon. It took them about uh, three hours to get the thing out because of an errant bolt that they were having problems with. They had to kind of shake the bolt loose and, and do a, a few things to pull the IDA out of the trunk, and they had to do it ever, you know, painfully slowly. Yeah, I was hoping Mike Massimino would just come in and rip it off like the handle on Hubble, but <laughs> guess not. No, but in this case, everything went extraordinarily well. They both, uh, Jeff Williams and uh, Kate Rubens, they got some, they actually got a couple get-ahead tasks together 
think Kate was able to go ahead and get some cables together for the uh, second IDA. And Jeff Williams was able to go ahead and get some cabling on the uh, on the Russian side of the house for a uh, a multiplexer demultiplexer until um, and they were pressing on with some uh, additional get ahead tasks when Jeff Williams reported that he was having an issue with I believe the right hand side of his uh, communications lines and uh, he could not hear uh, the ground you know it was only getting intermittent sound and. The flight director went ahead and, and did the right thing and pulled the plug on the EVA. The The whole thing ran about uh, five hours, 42 minutes. They were back at the ISS. And uh, again, other than that technical problem with that communications issue, everything went well. And there will be another EVA planned on August 1st. That one's kind of interesting. It's to set up the stage, if you will, to try to figure out where this coolant leak might be coming from. Anybody's been listening to the show or following the ISS program for any prolonged period of time knows that there's been a, an errant coolant leak on the station coming from somewhere. And they have yet to go ahead and isolate exactly where that coolant leak is coming from. And that's what this EVA is going to do. It's going to try to isolate where the heck this leak is actually coming from. That'll be the mission of, uh, again, Spacewalkers, Jeff Williams and Kate Rubens. So uh, that, I believe, is scheduled again for September 1st. Uh, there's going to be a press conference, I think, Sawyer, coming up on the 24th of August. That'll outline the details for that particular uh, EVA. Again, busy time for the International Space Station, which I think why part and parcel the Antares launch for uh, OA-5 was kind of moved back a little bit to try to get these activities out of the way and get these other two spacecraft out, out of there. Because I believe not only is SpaceX leaving, but I think there's a Soyuz leaving as well. I think, in the not-too-distant future. So we want to go ahead and make sure that goes off without a hitch, and then they'll probably go ahead and launch OA-5 after all that. Yeah, I mean, it's a busy time of the International Space Station, but a great time getting everything ready for commercial crew and getting all those crews of actual people up there right now. And I mean, it's an exciting time aboard the International Space Station. Yeah, agreed, Sawyer. There's a lot going on right now, and there's a couple other little tidbits of news concerning the ISS that we're going to just go ahead and jump right on into. Correct there, Sawyer? Yeah, let's do it. So while we're talking about commercial crew vehicles and commercial aboard the International Space Station, there was a recent press conference, and at it, NASA's Deputy Associate Administrator, Bill Hill, made an interesting comment. I will quote his words exactly. Quote, NASA's trying to develop economic development in low Earth orbit. Ultimately, our desire is to hand the space station over to either a commercial entity or some other commercial capability so that research can continue in low Earth orbit. We figure that'll be in the mid-20s. So to summarize, NASA basically is considering handing over the International Space Station to some commercial entity in the mid-2020s. Get rid of NASA's part in it, all the work that they did and everything, yeah, they're working with commercial now, but let's just give it to the highest bidder. Let commercial actually take over the space station. What do you think of that? Uh, oh, I read a, a similar story there, Sawyer. Uh, this was also out of uh, Space Light Insider, and a couple other folks had also gone ahead and written about this. I'm, I'm highly skeptical. Here's the deal. It, it costs about... Now, we've gone through some budgetary exercises here on the program, and right now, the majority of the human spaceflight 
budget is going toward the International Space Station. And I believe that budget is about $4 billion, with a B, dollars annually. Now, the only way I can – I don't see a single entity picking this up. Perhaps a consortium of entities picking this up, maybe. But the other thing, too, is what's the business model? Now, we know why NASA is doing this because NASA a, a is, a, is a government entity. You can afford to do it. But somebody needs to show me what the business model is for taking over the entire International Space Station. And the other thing, too, is we all we talking about the whole thing, including the Russian segment. I don't think so. I think the Russian segment would probably vanish. That's exactly my question, because it's huge. I mean, the idea of commercial labs in space, totally viable, I think. I, I That's what's coming. For yeah, sure. I mean, look at Bigelow. Well, look at Bigelow, exactly. But... The ISS is enormous. It costs a lot of money to keep up there, and it's going to be old soon. It's going to its maintenance costs are only going to go up. It's been up there for a long time. It's made to last a certain amount of time. It can last a little longer than it's intended to, but there's a point where you're talking about commercial entities taking something over for a pretty short amount of time. They don't have the the amount of investment that that would take. I don't know. I mean, I've never worked on multi-million dollar business plans, multi-billion dollar business plans. But even working on small ones lets you know that there's a point where you have to deal with a return on investment. And could this possibly have a high enough return on investment? My guess is that instead of seeing an entirely commercialized International Space Station or use in some way of the of the ISS existing infrastructure is that we'll see something really similar to the way that certain commercial providers are now managing launches for NASA. So I would not be surprised if, if there's use of the ISS beyond the current operational uh, agreements between all the partners is that we'll see it's something in the use of NASA and other partners retain ownership, retain that portion of it, but yet are able to pass along operational management or uses uh, scientific experimentation to commercial partners. So I think it's just anybody... something really, really similar to the public-private partnership going on right now with commercial spaceflight and NASA. Does anybody know with like the commercial lab use of ISS, does anybody know what kind of money that actually brings in? I know Nanorax is doing pretty well, but does anybody have an idea of what kind of money that actually brings in in the current usage? Sounds like a cases question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you looking at me for? <laughs> uh, full disclosure, I have been doing some part-time work with cases. But anyway, there is certainly plenty of opportunity. In case you're unaware, half of the U.S. Science Laboratory aboard the International Space Station is operated by CASIS, the Center for the Advancement of Science in Space. They indeed work very closely with NASA, but it is not NASA-run, which allows for more student experiments and for more other experiments to go aboard the International Space Station that might not otherwise get a chance to go with companies like NanoRacks, who we've talked to before right. on the show. Which, that's, that's sort of my big question, because obviously there's a portion of the... ISS that is currently dedicated to that already. I'm just thinking in terms of if I'm a company that wants to invest a lot more in a laboratory in space, I'd maybe be talking to Bigelow first. But hey, you know, that's still 
in the experimental phase. I mean, there's there's a lot of questions, but it just seems like it's kind of hard to make a business case to completely take it over. Cat, you've got a point with the public-private partnership, which is already something that's working up there. I just really wonder when it comes down to the lifespan. I've seen so many varying reports about the real lifespan. So I just question if it would be sort of throwing good money after bad rather than investing in creating a new commercial laboratory that's maybe smaller, easier to maintain, etc. Yeah, Cassie, to throw some some fuel onto your uh, onto your fire there a little bit. I believe Bill Gerstenmeier a couple of years ago was when we were talking about whether whether or not ISS was going to go past 2020. He was talking about trying to plan for for maintenance tasks and for anybody who owns a home, you have to go ahead and maintain it. There's always, you know, the roof has to be replaced, the you know, water heater has to be replaced, stuff like that. Bill Gerstenmeier was saying that the some of the solar panels on the International Space Station kind of look like they, I believe he characterized them as uh, Texas stop signs, really, really pitted and just kind of bad. It costs about four billion dollars just to keep the lights on. So, and we're not even talking about profits. So, I, I, again, I don't know if this beast is going to be viable from a business standpoint without government support. I'm going to throw something in. This is uh, me dredging up the past, but I was listening to a podcast that is extremely difficult to keep updated on. I'm not sure why. It's a uh, NASA Tech Briefs program, and mostly they're interviewing people that are part of the NASA program. And one of the questions that came up was, uh, or a statement, was about the solar arrays on the ISS. And... Okay, they were talking about future designs and having solar arrays that would have 150 to 300 kilowatts out output uh, power. For reference, the ISS is putting out about 84 kilowatts. And the statement that I remember hearing was that they were operating at a significantly reduced efficiency from what they were originally. So that goes along with wondering what the real lifetime is. And I'm curious if we could design an ISS version 2.0 uh, and have something that we would start uh, building and putting in orbit in some period of time, 10 years, I don't know what time frame to pick, what would it be like? What would, uh, what would the international, would it be an inter internationally cooperative effort? Would it be individual countries working with uh, businesses that were interested in, in being a part of it with an individual country or region? What would it be like? Would it be similar to what we have now? Would it be drastically different? That's not something we can certainly decide now. You almost have to, to think about this, I think, for, for quite a while. But it brings to mind that we've got, the I think, the granddaddy of all space stations for what we can envision these days. But would we do the same thing again? With the current technology, the way, you know, we'll just have to see what the tests are with Bigelow's expandable modules. I know... Orbital ATK is looking at using the Cygnus uh, spacecraft also as a small space station in and of itself, or, you know, around the moon or perhaps Mars. The form this thing could take is outrageous, but I think the key factor in the whole thing would be, would NASA even be involved? I'm not sure. I think NASA wants to get out of the orbital business. I think NASA wants to move on to, to the moon and Mars. And if we were to do it today, I think NASA would just say, hey, we're busy going to Mars. 
if private industry wants to go ahead and pick up a space station, let them put it together themselves. And that's where folks like you know, Lockheed Martin, Orbital ATK, Bigelow, and, and a couple others uh, would come in and try to design something that would be customizable for the need. I'd like to see if anybody recognizes the name of this company. Has anybody ever heard of Mircorp? If you're unaware, yeah, yep. First off, there's a great documentary about it. But second off, it was a commercial company that basically did kind of what they're talking about doing with the International Space Station. With the space station Mir, after Russia had basically stopped sending its own astronauts to it, they had formed a deal with a couple of business people, and they basically made the Mir space station a tourist-slash-commercial destination. They had the first commercial lease agreement. They had a mission that actually went to it. They had their own resupply vehicles. They had their own spacewalks, their own space tourist. All of that happened on Mir. It was only about a 73-day mission, and then there were financial issues, major financial issues. Plus, then Russia decided, well, we've got NASA saying they want to do the ISS with us, so they decided to deorbit Mir. But it has happened in the past. This wouldn't be the first time that a government space station has gone commercial. Yeah, but sorry, by the time Mir Corp rolled around, Mir itself was, wow, it was hurting big time. I mean, a lot of U.S. astronauts, when they did their time on Mir, were saying that it was really, really showing its age and getting long, long in the tooth. In all honesty, when, when Mir Corp was on the scene, I thought, as Cassie, you pointed out, it was uh, throwing good money after bad. I didn't know, because if I remember, Sawyer, maybe about 70% of time spent on Mir or something like that figure was spent on maintenance and not a whole lot on science. That's my worry, though, because as the ISS gets older, it's going to require so much more maintenance. And maintenance is not just money, but it's super precious labor when you're talking about a very small group of people living on the space station. <laughs> yeah, and again, we're talking 2024, 2028, somewhere around there. So still eight years from now, and the ISS is already starting to show age a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, and that's something that, you know, looking at what we've learned since uh, occupancy began on the ISS and going forward the next few years, I think we could build a far superior space station. And I have trouble imagining it as being as big. And I'm not sure about the international aspect of it. I think that you could get some smaller groups of partners on smaller stations and multiple stations. It would just make so much more sense from a cost perspective. The ISS is huge. <laughs> it's really huge. It's a small place to live for six months solid without being able to leave, but it's pretty big. <laughs> yeah, That's there's a lot cheap. to maintain. <laughs> it's not cheap. The advantage is that the foundation is there. Nations have poured a large amount of money into creating this, and there's a certain shame of letting that go. But there's going to be a viability issue. And, you know, and then there's going to be safety issues. And there's a point where you just don't want to take on all that liability either. Yeah, very true. Basically, if you're buying it from NASA, it's, you know, like any old used car. You're going to buy it as is. 
<laughs> yeah. And you're responsible for any maintenance. And if it breaks down two days after we gave it to you, well, too bad. You signed the lease or you signed the title. Yeah, I don't mind the thought of NASA getting out of that game either entirely, rather than supporting an aging, orbiting space station. It's also a matter of new labs that are made specifically just to do nothing else. The ISS was made with multiple purposes. And so something that's more just purpose-built directly for the purpose of being a lab is another thing that could be an advantage for a smaller station. So... There's a lot to maintain beyond what's usable lab space. Exactly. And I do have to point out that I have no idea what the Kelly Blue Book Valley would be because, I mean, <laughs> this car has way too many miles on it. I think the odometer's, you know, in nine digits already. I think counting. you just came up with a great humor book for the Kelly brothers. <laughs> How to sell a used space station. There you go. And we have an episode title, too, How to Sell a Used Space Station. Oh, man, if anybody remembers the old Earl Scheib commercials, oh, please. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, we will certainly be keeping an eye on that, and I think we've got a little bit of time, too, until anything like that happens. Because NASA, again, has said they will continue to support the International Space Station until the year 2024 as of right now. Russia has also agreed for right now to continue supporting the International Space Station as is through 2024. However, how many crew members they're supporting it with? That might be another question. And that leads us into our next topic, which on Monday, August 15th, NASA officials confirmed that Russia is indeed considering reducing its number of crew members on the ISS from three down to two. Might be a cost-saving thing, it might be, you know, they're considering getting out of the game because we've had that talked about before. But in short, they're talking about it getting their crew down to two. What say you? Yeah, Sawyer, I'm looking at the uh, actual article dated August 11th. This is from TASS, and they're quoting uh, Sergei Kirkolev here, who is, I guess, the program director for the ISS. And he's, he was saying that... This is being done to lower expenses and lower operating costs as part of the International Space Station. This coming later on, by the way, on the heels of now that Russia wants to go ahead, they want to spend the U.S. equivalent of $7.5 million to study the feasibility of setting up a lunar base. And I believe earlier today, if I can just go ahead and pull up the article here real fast, uh, they were talking about the possibility, and this, this is sort of like the, I don't know, this story's been like sort of like the Loch Ness Monster of space stories. It kind of peers up every now and again. It kind of shows its ugly head and then kind of drifts into the into the murk. The whole idea is that Russia is looking at the possibility of sending a Soyuz around the moon. And this mission was supposedly scheduled for 20, I believe they're talking about 20, 2021. And this is for profit, too. Supposedly, they're going to have eight passengers on this thing. They'll have a, an upgraded Soyuz with a, uh, a module of some sort, sort of a, a HAB module to fly around the moon with and, and return. Now, I'm not exactly too sure how you're going to get those eight people back because Soyuz only has about 
a three-person capacity on board, but okay. And and they're saying that this this mission is going to cost about $150 million, which, again, I don't buy at all. So they're talking about going ahead and doing all these expenditures and yet reducing the ISS crew to two. Here's the well card. The Russian budget for spaceflight, $19 billion U.S. over 10 years. So... Where really are they here? I think this is a a canary in a coal mine. I think the the Russian problem, the Russians are having more problems with their space program than actually we are. I think that this is really, uh, I mean, honestly, Russia's you know kind of fronting. That's that's how I feel about it because exploring a trip to the moon, I totally understand the impulse, but. Russia's having a lot of PR issues right now. <laughs> you know, reducing the crew, I don't know, putting, putting a, saying we want to put money into going to the moon is like a noble purpose to it. And I, I don't know, I feel like there's a bit of a PR thing going on here. Uh, you, the Russia, what, what was it that Winston Churchill said, said of Russia, or then the Soviet Union? I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but it went something along the lines of an enigma wrapped around inside a blanket inside a black box or something like that. I'm misquoting it to the nth degree, but Winston Churchill's words all those years ago ring true now. You can't figure out what they're going to be doing. It's Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Right. Thanks. I couldn't remember the exact quote off the top of my head. I actually I quoted it today on Twitter. But um, where's Benedict Cumberbatch with his Enigma machine? Come on. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not going to go there. But anyway, (laughs) no, it's just I think they're rudderless. Yeah. Well, they've got massive, massive budget issues. They are scrambling to maintain their standing in the global space community. They're struggling in so many areas like this. This just feels like yet another place where they feel like they still need to... You know, Russia's a very proud country. They need to be proud and strong, and they need to have honorable reasons to do the things that they're doing when it comes to space. And it's important to their culture and their history and their people. So, I don't know. I just feel like they definitely do not have the money for this mission at this point. That doesn't mean their fortunes aren't going to change at some point. And I always applaud them for the fact that they're super, super ambitious, way beyond their resources. (laughs) It's good to dream big, but it just doesn't sound like a realistic goal at the moment. Yeah, it's good to dream big if you've got the resources to do it. Yeah. But, but, But they don't. I think it's really hard on Russia that they don't, though, because, you know, they're so used to having capacity my thought is and and here's the pot calling the kettle black but i'll say it anyway take a plan and stick with it well yeah i mean we, we kind of wish every country would do that don't huh. we yeah, yeah. exactly and, and i and i say that with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek <laughs> but that's what they have to right. do and, and and that's what by the way we're as trying long as to we're do willing to as long as we're not being hypocrites and we're willing to criticize nasa for the same things we're criticizing russia for i don't see any problem with us criticizing both of them this is a problem it's a problem of i love governmental space projects i love 
federal space agencies, but this is one of the problems with them is that they are subject to the whims of politicians. It's a very different situation in Russia than here because here every eight years we have to deal with somebody new in charge who can completely change the mission of NASA. That's something they can do. That's our problem. Russia has a problem because they've actually got the same guy running everything for a very long time now, and he's very, very ambitious, but his nation is struggling, and he doesn't like for people to know that it's struggling. So they're constantly trying to make it look like they're still essentially the Soviet Union with all its power and all its resources. The thing is, they're not. And, no, they're not. you know, it's like me, you know, I mean, I, again, coming back to the dream thing, the dream big thing. I mean, I could dream I want a Bentley, but I can only afford a Chevy. So <laughs> what you ha what you have to do is do what NASA's doing. Work within this is the budget you get. Work within that budget and see what happens and try not to allow your ambitions to exceed that budget. NASA sometimes does that too, but not to the extent that Russia does it. Russia does it unrealistically. Yeah. Well, and aren't all space programs simply balancing pragmatism with idealism? Or we could even say all politics in general to, to kind of... Yeah. I'll buy that, that one. I'll buy that one. No, sure. and it's very uh, exactly what she said is is exactly why we cover things like policy because it that is that struggle of balancing what you can do with what you want to do. But you know, you have to remember we're talking about an entirely different culture that doesn't think the way that we do. So there's that factor too. I feel like this is not at all out of character. <laughs> this making this statement. Yeah, not out of character for pretty much any government space agency, you know, plus Russia lately has been doing a lot of the, oh, well, now maybe we'll back out earlier. Oh, now maybe we'll drop back down to two people. They've been throwing a lot of threats out regarding their role in the ISS. And what I want to know, here's my question about this story. Forget Russia themselves. If they're knocking down to two on the station at a time, does that create opportunities for, say, Japan and ESA to maybe get more people up there? I mean, if they're going aboard Starliner or uh, Dragon, yeah, you know, for sure. yeah, I would think so. I mean, it's it's interesting because the, with the fact that manned spaceflight's supposed to be coming back to our shores and not too too long, really, in the grand scheme, um, it's it's an interesting question because we do have the space on the station. So, what could be, you know, how how could this be used as an opportunity for others? Would be an interesting question. Uh, what I what I missed was the date, the, the the timeline for this. Obviously, they have crews named for some extent, right? Yeah, from what I'm seeing, it sounds like they're talking about sometime between 2020 and 2024. Right. So, because that's the Very thing I'm vague. not seeing in any articles. So that's another factor because if it's 2020, then at that point, perhaps somebody from another country can hitch a ride with an American commercial company. <laughs> the one thing I do want to also point out, though, is we talked about this about a year or so ago when I talked to some of the people involved with the ISS science program. They have been talking about, and they still continue to talk about, bringing the crew of the ISS up to seven. Just keep that in mind, too. Oh, you know, there's something funny about hearing that number. It just makes me think of shuttle. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, that's what they've been saying. Uh, all the ISS people, We, if you go back to the ISS RDC show we did last year, we have the quote yeah. from them saying they mm -hmm. want to get to seven. Yeah. 
And, you know, that's actually a distinct possibility with some vehicles. So, hey, that'd be so cool. If this could create new opportunities, if this could create a chance for the nations who are already involved to get a little bit more involved, that could be a good thing. I mean, there's a lot to this story. Yeah, it seems uh, yeah. like it's a terrible thing, but, you know, it certainly opens up a lot of doors. And uh, I guess someone, though, is going to get stuck sleeping in a Russian bunk, so. <laughs> you know, it's tough, though, uh, just because it is such a skinny story so far. I mean, we'll just we'll have to see how this shakes out, but we'll keep covering it for everybody out there. So never fear. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Stick with Talking Space and we'll keep you in the loop. And of course, if you have any thoughts on all the stuff going on in the space station between commercialization and dropping crew, let us know. Drop us an email, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Tweet us at Talking Space. We are also on Facebook and on Google Plus as Talking Space. All right, now I figure best way to wrap this up, talking about all this uncertainty of the future and everything, is to take a look back at the past. And Mark has a really interesting story about that. So Mark, this one's all you. Ready. And interesting, this is a string of interesting. About two years ago, I found a blog that is uh, by White Eagle Aerospace. The writer is J. Terry White. And he is both an educator as well as the CEO of White Eagle Aerospace. And he's authored more than 180 technical papers on aeroscience and aerospace subjects. He's got a passion for the history of our space program, and he does a phenomenal job writing. And in that two years, I've gotten 86 emails. You can subscribe to their blog, and they'll send you a, a blog post in your email every time they put one out, which varies from three to five times a month. Now, this particular one, this has actually stuck with me for a year and it's just been a matter of timing as to when's the right time to bring this up on the show. So let's go back 52 years ago, and the X-15 program was still underway. X-15 Ship 2, flown by Major Robert Rushworth, had a flight on the 14th of August, 1964. Uh, this was the 114th powered flight of the program, the mission would be uh, Rushworth's 22nd flight in the famed hypersonic aircraft. So this was not teething pains for the X-15. It wasn't an experience on the part of the pilot. The B-52 dropshipped, released the X-15 over Del Mar Dry Lake, Nevada. Seconds later, Rushworth called for 100% power from the X-15's XLR-99 liquid-fueled rocket engine. And he pulled it into a steep climb. He pushed over and leveled off at 103,300 feet. Burnout occurred at 80.3 seconds after ignition. At burnout, the X-15 was traveling over five times the speed of sound. Following burnout, the aircraft slowed, began to lose altitude under the influence of weight and aerodynamic drag. As the Mach meter passed through Mach 4.2, Rushworth heard a loud bang from the airframe. The aircraft became hard to control as it gyrated in pitch, yaw, and roll. Rushworth was equal to the moment and brought his troubled steed under control. However, the aircraft had an uncommanded side slip and he had to use full left aileron to hold the wings level. Gathering his wits, he realized that the loud bang was very similar to what occurred when the nose gear was deployed in the landing pattern. Unaccountably, here's what happened. The X-15 nose gear had deployed in supersonic flight. 
it was a bit unsettling when his hypothesis was added to with smoke, quite a bit of it, in the cockpit. He is now nearing Edwards Air Force Base. Chase aircraft caught up with him, confirmed the nose gear was down and locked, but the tires were so scorched from the aerodynamic heating that they would disintegrate on touchdown on Rogers Dry Lake. And they did. Despite the tireless nose gear, he was able to control the rollout fairly well. He brought it to a stop and deplaned. Man and machine survived to fly another day. You think, well, you know, that's not so bad. Nose gear deploys, pilot handles it, puts it on the ground. Well, actually, post-flight analysis confirmed that aerodynamic heating was greater than expected. Did I say 114th powered flight? The nose gear door bowed bowed, rather, or deformed outward more than anticipated as well. Together, these two anomalies caused the gear uplock hook to bend and release the nose gear. Fixes were made to ship two to prevent a recurrence of this nose gear deployment anomaly. Rushworth next flew ship two about a month, a little over a month later, 29 September of 64. He reached a maximum speed of Mach 5.2 at 97,800 feet similar neighborhood to what he did on his previous flight. The nose gear door remained unlocked. However, while decelerating through Mach 4.5, he heard a bang that was less intense than the previous flight. This time, thermal stresses caused the nose gear door air scoop to deploy in flight. While the aircraft handled poorly, he was able to get it and himself back on the ground in one piece. Here we go. Test pilot following another redesign effort. Rushworth took the ship to the air on the 17th of February, 65. So some months later, he hit 3,539 miles per hour at Mach 5.27 at 95,100 feet. On this occasion, both the nose gear door and the nose gear door scoop remained in place. Yahoo! Unfortunately, the right main landing skid deployed at Mach 4.3 at 85,000 feet. Thermal stresses, once again the culprit, degraded handling, landing skid deployed. That's one landing skid. There's two, kind of like main gear you would think of on a conventional aircraft. Rushworth landed safely in the X-15. Upon deplaning, I think derocketing might be a good one to throw in there, he's reported to have kicked the aircraft in a show of disgust and frustration. Unprofessional, maybe. Understandable, yeah. Another redesign effort uh, of the unexpected main landing skid deployment. Third consecutive mission. That was three in a row for ship two. Three in a row for Rushworth. And for him to experience these thermally induced landing gear and landing skid deployments. Happily after this, subsequent flights of that aircraft were free of such vexing issues. And to me, it's just really interesting to think about what are test pilots, what our leading edge in this program was doing in 1964, well before we uh, were ready to launch Apollo to the moon. And uh, again, these blogs you can uh, sign up for. You can always just go check the website whenever you like. It's whiteeagleaerospace.com and their blog link you'll see on their main page. And I think it's just phenomenal as anything. And the latest blog, which actually came out today, August 22nd, refers to the highest X-15 flight. 
that went up to 354,200 feet, the highest altitude ever reached by the X-15. Um, and I'll just jump to the end. The pilot, Joe Walker, never officially received astronaut wings for this flight in which the X-15 design altitude was exceeded by over 100,000 feet. That's a shame, but I hope that you'll take a look at this blog. I think you'll enjoy it. Lots of good stories. Golly, takes you back to the history of our space program and the phenomenal men and women that were part of it. Mark, thanks a lot for that. There's, I mean, there's just so much history with the X-15. It was essentially the prototype, if you really think about it, for the space shuttle. The program really, really kind of set the stage for the shuttle and, and a lot of the a lot of the data, believe it or not, that was acquired through the X-15 program is still being used today because it's the best data we have for those those atmospheric conditions. I believe one of the last experiments, and I think, Mark, you may have touched on this when it came up. I believe it was either STS-134 or 135 where they had a, a small you know, bubble or dimple on one of the tiles that they, they put actually a sensor on there to try to get air data of some sort. And this was going to be the first time they were going to get that kind of data since the X-15 days. And um, just a, a little bit of local history around here. Over at where I used to work, over at the Picatinny Arsenal over here in Rockaway, the X-15 engine was actually built. So the engine that you're talking about that these guys flew was actually designed here in New Jersey, right across the way from where I live just about. So a little bit of a local history there. And that's why I'm a little bit – whenever you talk about the X-15, I, my, I get – you know, my eyes start getting really, really, you know, excited and this big smile comes on the face because not only was that just such an exquisite program, it has some roots here in Jersey. So, again, Mark, thanks so much for the time and bringing this forward. And definitely we're going to include that blog in the show notes here. Just as an aside, too, if anybody's interested, there was also a great, great, great documentary done by NBC in, I believe, like late 80s, early 90s on the X-15 called The Rocket Pilots. It's available out there on YouTube. If you can go ahead and see it, it gives a really great history of the X-15. But again, if you really want to go ahead and get down and dirty and get into the nuts and bolts, Mark, that's such a great blog. I'm going to have to hit it. I did not know about that until tonight. So thanks so much for bringing that to our attention. Yeah, sorry about that. I've been watching it for two years and reading uh, like over 86 uh, blog posts that they've done since the end of 2014. And if you contrast what I was sort of reading and synopsizing from this one blog from a year ago to the quintessential picture of cool, which is Neil Armstrong in his pressure suit with his helmet under his arm and his hand on the nose of the X-15 just looking cool as a cucumber and and yet it wasn't that simple nope um again you look at uh, somebody like scott crossfield who was the first pilot for the x-15 everybody was he, he was under orders not to go ahead and and run the thing out he obeyed orders right to the end of the program he really wanted to go ahead and sort of kick the horse and make it go as fast as it could but you know, shoot, you know, he was under orders not to. And I think that gives you a lot of discipline there. It shows a lot of discipline there as far as what these guys were and 
how they had to be and how they had to react up there. Again, another story is is he this crossfield would come on in full gear, even though you might not be able to fly that day and they just weren't getting the aircraft together, but he sat there sometimes in that aircraft for about four hours. And Mark, you've everybody's seen the X-15. You know how cramped that's in there. So imagine sitting in that thing for about four hours while you're waiting for some gremlin to be exercised from the aircraft. Again, a lot of discipline from those folks. Again, the fantastic find, Mark. Thanks. Yeah, that is amazing. We will, without a doubt, link to that show notes. So thank you. And I think that's the perfect way to wrap up this week's episode. And I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. And by the way, everybody, way to go if you contributed to the Lowell Observatory uh, Kickstarter. They met their goal a while back ago. The Kickstarter's closed. They're going to restore the uh, observatory where... Clyde Tombaugh discovered Pluto, thanks to everybody that contributed. So we mentioned that here on air. So again, anybody who did, many thanks. That's awesome news. And thank you as well for joining us and for that awesome story, Mark Ratterman. As a friend of ours from uh, back when we all first met, would use if this was a social media post, hashtag thrust. Very nice. And of course, so great to have the ladies of Talking Space back. Thank you once again for joining us, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftlass. Thank you so much. And I feel I would be remiss since all I've done for the past two weeks is watch Olympics if I didn't give a big shout out to uh, the American women who, as a group, if they were their own country, would have won more medals than any other country except for Great Britain, which they would have tied with. So I just want to give a shout out to all the amazing athletes and also just the spirit of international cooperation. It's one of the reasons I love space and it's one of the reasons I love sports. So kudos to Rio for throwing a great show. Oh yeah, yeah. And so many countries together, all working together with the same goal of promoting sports and getting people healthy and just friendly competition. Yeah, they're good things. They're good things. And I like them in uh, all areas. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but especially when we cooperate in space. (laughs) Oh yeah. And thank you as well for joining us, Kat Robinson. Always a pleasure and just really happy to be back in the States, back where my academic freedoms are protected because, you know, I spent a a summer in a place where, unfortunately, something over tens of thousands of academics have been arrested or detained. So um, very happy to be on the show, being able to exercise, you know, my right to talk about things that interest me without fear of repercussion. So thinking about the international cooperation of the Olympics. It's nice to be able to even see in the Olympics the ways in which different people can represent the best that their countries have to offer instead of the worst. It's very well said. And like you said, being here, being able to talk about whatever you want, including talking space. (laughs) Yes, very much so. (laughs) And on that note, I'd like to thank you as well for joining us from wherever in the world you're from. And we hope you'll join us next time. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.